Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. Our church's vision is to have a passion for God and compassion for people. We hope that the teachings in this podcast will encourage you as you seek to follow Christ and grow in your faith. Now, let's get into today's message. Well, good morning once again, Ritman Grace. How are we doing this morning? Good to be here with you once again. Um, as I said earlier, my name's Clark. That hasn't changed. Um, the pastor here, that hasn't changed. Depending on how this sermon goes, that won't change. Um, it's good to be here with you, though. And if I haven't met you yet, love to meet you. Love to meet your family after service. Uh, we are in a sermon series on the crucifixion, in case you weren't able to make that connection yet. Uh, we've got crosses on the screen, on the front of the pulpit here, which they did a great job. Um, one of the things that we said last week when we started this sermon series is that we want to change the way that we see the cross. We looked at the scandal of the crucifixion from the book of 1 Corinthians last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we saw that the message of the cross, uh, the message of Christ crucified is something that's foolishness to the world. In other words, it's completely upside down from what we would expect the cross is the least religious symbol in the history of the world uh, because last week what we said is that nobody in the first century A.D. would expect to walk into a building like this and see a cross on the wall. Uh, the crucifixion was something that was scandalous. So today we want to continue our sermon series by talking about uh, the cross, obviously, but we want to ask this question. We want to ask what was happening to Jesus on the cross. What was happening to Jesus while he was on the cross? The simplest New Testament summary is this. In 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul says, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So the Bible summarizes everything that Christ was doing on the cross by saying that he died for our sins. And when we think about Christ dying for our sins, we tend to think in categories of guilt, categories of forgiveness. Jesus is taking the stroke of justice that we deserve. He's bearing the penalty for our sin because the punishment for our sin fell on him, as the prophet Isaiah says. And all of that is really good news. However, that is not the only thing that has happened. So let me ask you another question. Uh, this might might get us at what else is happening during Jesus's death. Here's the other question. Does the way Jesus died matter? Does the way that Jesus died matter? Think about it this way. What if Jesus had been stabbed to death like Julius Caesar? What if Jesus had been beheaded like John the Baptist? What if Jesus had been thrown to the lions like many of the early Christian martyrs? Does the way that Jesus died matter? What would change? What, what would the manner of Jesus' death, crucifixion, re reveal about what Jesus and his death accomplishes? That's the question I want us to think about today. So let's just begin by talking about the purpose in which the crucifixion played within the Roman Empire in the first century. So I'm going to read you a few quotes from some different scholars today. 
This first one is from Anthony Thistleton, and we looked at this last week. I think it's good to revisit, though. He says this, that death on the cross was regarded in Roman society as brutal, disgusting, and abhorrent, was reserved for convicted slaves and convicted terrorists, and could never be imposed upon a Roman citizen or more respectable criminals. So here's the point that Thistleton is making here. There are class implications at play. Crucifixion said something about your status and your social standing, your place in society. Only certain kinds of people were crucified, you see. Another quote from a New Testament scholar, Joel Green, says this, executed publicly, situated at a major crossroads or on a well-trafficked artery, devoid of clothing, left to be eaten by birds and beasts, victims of crucifixion were subject to optimal, unmitigated, vicious ridicule. It's one thing to be humiliated, right? None of us like that. It's another thing to be publicly humiliated. That's one of the things that we fear the most. And Joel Green says that that was the whole point of crucifixion, public disgrace, ridicule, humiliation. Here's the third quote by Marilyn McCord Adams. It says, On the cross, Jesus takes our defilement to the third degree. For crucifixion is not like the right slit to the throat, a clean death. Crucifixion caricatures humanity, twists the body, wrecks psycho-spiritual balance, does its best not only to blemish but to degrade they were not only out to give our Savior, uh, they, they were not out to give our Savior a quick and easy death. They were out to blemish and to degrade. Listen finally to Fleming Rutledge, which says this If Jesus' demise is construed merely as a death, even as a painful, tortured death, the crucial point will be lost. Crucifixion was specifically designed to be the ultimate insult to personal dignity the last word, and humiliating and dehumanizing treatment. Degradation was the whole point. So here's what I want us to see. The way Jesus died matters. The way Jesus died mattered. The way Jesus dies says something about what he is accomplishing in his death. Crucifixion was a public shaming. It was designed to degrade, to dishonor, and to dehumanize to the fullest extent. And here's what else I want us to see. On the cross, Jesus was shamed so that you and I could be restored to honor. On the cross, Jesus Christ was shamed so that you and I could be restored to honor. That is the point of the text in the sermon this morning. So let's think a little bit about the difference now between guilt and shame. Guilt and shame, because there's... These are two different things. Sometimes they can become confused and conflated in our thinking, though. I love what this uh, pastor, Harold Sankbell, says. This is a little bit longer, but stick with me. This is really good stuff. He says, This guilt has to do with behavior, while shame is a matter of identity. Guilt is tied to the sinful things that I've done. Shame is the continuous experience of utter remorse over who I am. Guilt and shame are not only subjective human feelings, they are objective realities. I feel guilty because I am guilty. I've done wrong at the same time because I've been defiled or had shameful things done to me. I'm also ashamed. 
He continues, he says, I feel polluted and contaminated. Eve took the fruit and ate it, and then she gave some to her husband and he ate. They had violated God's will. They did wrong and stood guilty and condemned before him. That's the root of our problem too. We sin, and in sinning we violate God's commands and come under his righteous judgment. But the same sin that violated the will of God and placed Adam and his wife under his judgment also shamed them. They were also victims of sin. That is, they had a keen sense of deep and unrelenting disgrace. That's why they took cover. They needed to hide their shame. So that's what shame does. It pushes us into hiding. And this is why sin is so destructive. Because every time we sin, we're experiencing both guilt, but also shame. And see, Adam and Eve were both sinners, and they were victims of sin. And this is why the Bible speaks of sin as a power that conquers us and it rules us. And even if you have not sinned, but if you've been the victim of someone else's sin against you, you feel shamed by their sin. Shame and guilt though related in certain ways, are different. So let's talk a little bit about how shame feels now. Here's what Christian counselor Ed Welch has to say about that. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. Did you catch that? Something you did, something done to you, something associated with you. Those are the three categories that create the sense that we are unacceptable. And Harold St. Bell says, a person who experiences shame has an abiding sense of failure and self-disgust. We can see how this works in our children. When you correct your child, he's crestfallen because he knows he's done wrong. But he also knows he's disappointed you and therefore has an intense sense of unworthiness. He's shamed. For his guilt, your child needs forgiveness because he knows he has wronged you. For his shame, he needs cleansing from his deep sense of defilement and degradation. So besides forgiving him when you wrap him up in your arms, you reaffirm and embrace him as your beloved son. What a powerful quote. There's some profound parenting wisdom there for those of us that raise children. But what I want us to see and not miss is that guilt and shame are similar, yet different. Shame is that feeling that you're defiled, that you're contaminated, that you're unclean. Ed Welch says that shame is a life-dominating struggle, and it becomes your identity. And remember that quote that we mentioned a little bit earlier, while guilt comes from things that you have done, shame attaches itself to your identity, and it touches everything about you. And it feels as if for shame to go away that you have to go away which explains why some of us have a, such a deep sense of self-loathing and self-hatred and self-disgust. We need to go away for shame to go away. So let me give you four ways to identify shame. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. This is from Ed Welch in his book, Shame Interrupted. I thought these were really helpful. He suggests four tools to identify shame. And the first one is this. He says, listen to your self-talk. Listen to your self-talk. Ed Welch says, shame's vocabulary is particularly harsh and sharp. Do you hear words like loser, inadequate, 
failure, worthless. What experiences are those words connected to? He says, listen to your self-talk. One of the ways to identify shame. Here's the second way to identify shame. It says, look for emotional patterns of anger and isolation. Is your anger really a form of self-loathing? Do you tend to avoid community because you are actually disgusted with yourself and you don't want to be known? Sometimes patterns of anger and isolation are a good sign of shame. The third way to identify shame He says, look for parts of your story that you've tried to forget. What are the shameful things in your family, in your past, that you'd just rather not talk about? And then number four, look at how you relate to God. He says, does it seem like God's promises are probably true for other people, but not for you? Do you have like this Teflon coating on you when it comes to the promises of God? Like they just don't stick. Almost as if you could preach the gospel to everybody else. But somehow, you do, I, get, I just can't hear it myself. It doesn't apply to me. If that's true of you, look at how you relate to God. I don't know what story that we're all walking in here this morning with today. But here's what I do know. Here's the common denominator that each of us have. Every one of us feels guilt. And every one of us carries shame to some degree. And we don't just need forgiveness for our guilt, but we need freedom from our shame. And that's why the way Jesus died matters. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ was not just killed, He was shamed. He took our shame so that you could be restored to honor. And this is exactly what the prophet said Jesus would do. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. This is a great passage that we heard a few minutes ago. And if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the words up on the screen for you. This chapter of Isaiah has long been seen throughout church history as a prophecy about the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. I actually want to start in verse 5 and kind of work backwards. So notice in verse 5 what it says in Isaiah. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him, and by His wounds we are healed. You hear the cadence and the rhythm of that verse, the Him and us, and Him and us, and Him and us. The theme here is the theme of substitution. Jesus dying in our place, bearing our sin, taking on Himself our curse. Right, the punishment that brought us peace. Now look at verse 3 now. He was despised, rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. I would say this, that if verse 5 is talking about guilt, verse 3 is talking about shame. So we're familiar with guilt, the categories for, of Him for, for us, substituting in our place, bearing God's justice. But let's just kind of slow down a little bit this morning and try to wrap our minds around not just guilt, but shame. Let's walk through verse 3 very slowly, meditating on each phrase. Isaiah tells us, first of all, 
Notice, he was despised. He was despised. The word here means to disdain or to hold in contempt, to scorn. Listen to a few other places where the Bible uses this word. In Genesis chapter 25, Esau despises his birthright. He counts it as worthless, so he trades it to Jacob for a good meal. In 1 Samuel, it says that when Goliath saw David, realized that he was a youth, he despised him. In 2 Samuel, the prophet Nathan tells David that because he has sinned with Bathsheba, he has despised the Lord. When we've been treated shamefully by others, another way to say it is that we have been despised. Every human being is made in the image of God, which means every human being has inherent dignity and value and worth, regardless of what they do, regardless of what they produce, regardless of their resume, and regardless of what they bring to the world. Every human being, simply because they are human, is full of dignity. When we despise others, we deny them the honor they rightfully deserve simply for being a human being. When we are despised and treated shamefully by others, we're denied the rightful honor that is ours simply because we're human beings. On the cross, the Lord Jesus was despised. And if any human being ever deserved honor and respect and admiration, was it not Christ? If anyone has ever been worthy of dignity and respect, was it not the Son of God? And yet Isaiah tells us that he was despised. And notice what else Isaiah says. Not only was he despised, but also, notice, rejected by mankind. The Hebrew word here means forsaken, ignored, deserted. And some of you know how that feels. You know that feeling very well. You know what it's like to feel left out. You know what it's like to feel forsaken and ignored by your classmates, by your siblings, to be the butt of all the jokes and to be the object of all the ridicule. You know the deep loneliness of being the outcast. Maybe those days are in the rearview mirror for you. Maybe for some of you, now that you're an adult, you can kind of sort, sort of put those behind you, so to say. But I bet it doesn't take much to pull those memories to the surface. And when they come, it's like you're right there again. And you feel emotionally the same thing that you felt in that moment, on the playground, in your family, in your neighborhood. But listen, Jesus knows that feeling. Jesus knows that feeling. Jesus knows what it feels like to be rejected, to be forsaken. He was rejected more fully, in fact, than any of us have ever been. And notice what the text says, that he was rejected by mankind, literally by all mankind, by humanity. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, God lets himself be pushed out of the world onto the cross. In his death, our Savior was totally alone, rejected by men. He was despised and rejected by mankind. Also notice, he was a man of suffering familiar with pain. Some of your Bible translations say he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Doesn't this strike you as an odd description of the Lord Jesus? Wouldn't it be true also to say that Jesus was the most joyful human being who's ever walked the face of the earth? 
I mean, the happiest, the most satisfied person to ever live. Just think about it. Jesus lived without sin and he was full of the Holy Spirit, which means that he was also full of the fruit of the Spirit, which Scripture tells us is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. All these things mark the character and the disposition of the Lord Jesus Christ to the fullest extent. So he was more joyful and he was more loving and more at peace than anyone who has ever been. So isn't it kind of odd to think of Jesus as a man of suffering, familiar with pain, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief? Well, just think about this for a minute. Think about what it would be like to live in this fallen world so full of the Holy Spirit that you could not possibly harden your heart, close your eyes, shut your ears. Charles Spurgeon writes this about this passage. The reason for Christ's superior sorrow may be found in the fact that with his sorrow, there was no admixture of sin. Sin blunts the edge of grief by rendering the soul untender and unsympathetic. Jesus could see sin where we cannot see it and feel its heinousness as we cannot feel it. There was therefore more grief to him, and he was more capable of being grieved. The Savior was always moved with sympathy with another's griefs, for his love was ever at flood tide. All men's sorrows were his sorrows. His heart was so large that it was inevitable that he should become a man of sorrows. The world was ever a wilderness to him, and his life was one long Lent. It's a powerful quote by Charles Spurgeon. So yes, he was despised. He was rejected by mankind. Jesus was a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. I want you to notice that last phrase there. We held him in low esteem, which means we took no thought of him. We didn't give him a second thought. And what's being expressed here is the exact opposite of what you read in Psalm 40, verse 17, where the psalmist says, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. This is the psalmist's comfort to his own soul in Psalm 40. I'm poor and needy, but here's my hope, my comfort. The Lord takes thought of me. While Jesus was on the cross, He was taking thought of us, but we were not taking thought of Him. We held him in low esteem. We esteemed him not, Isaiah tells us. Remember what we've already said about the crucifixion. Crucifixion was a way of rendering someone a non-person, not worthy of mention, exiled outside of the city, executed in a way that said, you're not even a part of society. You're scum, you're refuse, you're worthy of being forgotten. That is the death our Savior chose. And that's why crucifixion is beautiful. In his death on the cross, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, goes down to the lowest place. And he doesn't just forgive our sin. He bears your shame. He hangs there naked so that you can be clothed. He's cursed and he is mocked so that you can hear words of honor and blessing in your life. He is despised and he is rejected and forsaken so that you can be loved and welcomed and embraced. On the cross, Jesus was shamed so that you could be restored to honor. That was Jesus on the cross. What was Jesus doing on the cross? Yes, he was taking your guilt. 
But also, he was being despised. He was being rejected and shamed and humiliated in your place and in mine. He bore all that shame and all that ridicule and all that despised, forsaken, rejected. He took all of that with him into the grave and he buried it forever. And then three days later, he rose in victory and triumphed over the voice of shame. And here's what that means. It means that those whom the Son sets free are free. Here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. The more unworthy and the more outcast and the more ashamed that you feel the more qualified you are to be part of his kingdom. Because here's what the resurrection means. The resurrection means that shame does not have the last word in the life of Jesus Christ. He's been restored to honor. You cannot contaminate Jesus. You cannot defile Jesus because shame does not stick to him. He brings us from shame to honor. Philippians chapter 2 tells us because Jesus was humbled, humbled himself to death, even to death on a cross. That's not a throwaway phrase. It's not just death. It's death on a cross that matters. Because Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. And there is no one as highly honored in all of the universe as the Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what? Guess who? He shares that honor with everyone who belongs to him. His honor is your honor. His exaltation is your exaltation. Shame will not have the last word in your life. Jesus will. Because on the cross, Jesus was shamed so that you and I could be restored to honor. So this morning, let's put shame in its place. Let's believe and receive and embrace the good news of the gospel, not just for our guilt, but also for our shame. The problem with shame is that it's stubborn. It doesn't go away. You can hear a sermon like this, and it could sound great, and then by 5 p.m. today, you'll feel the shame wash all over you once again. But even now, the voice of shame is probably telling some of you, yeah, this sermon doesn't really apply to you. Yeah, it's a good sermon, but it doesn't apply to you. This counts for everybody else in the room except you. God doesn't want you. All of this bounces right off of you and applies to everybody else. So the only way to defeat shame is to associate with someone who is highly honored. The only way to defeat shame is to associate and to be willing to associate with someone who is highly honored. And that is what I would like us to do this morning, to associate with the one who is the most highly honored person in the entire universe. And Ed Welch says that passivity is the most dangerous symptom of shame. Shame makes us passive, hanging around, hearing sermons, hearing truth, appreciating Jesus, being a part of the people of God, but never really boldly identifying with him and embracing the honor that he offers you. So this morning, I want you to decisively associate with the Lord Jesus I want you to tell him that you're with him, and I want you to declare your allegiance, and I want you to boldly identify with him publicly and openly and courageously. If your shame is a result of your own sin, then come clean. Own up to what you've done. Admit it was wrong, and ask Jesus to forgive you and to cleanse you and to set you free. If your shame is a result of someone else's sin against you, then reject the lies that that shame tells. 
there's thousands of them that sounds a lot like this. I brought this on myself. I deserve this somehow. This will always define who I am. Let the truth of Scripture speak to those lies that it's not your fault, that you didn't deserve it. This is not going to define you. This does not define you. And then receive the honor that is yours in Jesus. Ed Welch says, if you want Jesus, you must be willing to accept the honor that he brings with him. That's the good news that some of you really need to hear this morning. Not Jesus died to forgive your sins. You, you know that. A lot of people know that. And that's important too. But also, Jesus brings with him honor. And you get to be in on that through faith and repentance. If you want Jesus, you have to be willing to accept the honor that he brings with him. Turn from your unbelief and accept the honor that is yours in Jesus Accept it a thousand times a day. It's yours in Christ. And then as you reject the lies and repent of sin, reject unbelief and embrace truth, and then move out in mission. Move out in mission towards others because you know what shame wants you to do? What shame really wants you to do and for me to do, it wants to keep you on the sidelines. It wants to convince you that there's probably not a lot that you can do to contribute to the kingdom of God and in the world but that's not true. That's a lie. Move out in mission towards others by loving them recklessly and by blessing them earnestly. And honor other people as Christ honored you. Listen to their stories and help them hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Move out in love and grace and mercy and kindness to the people around you. It's on the cross. Jesus received shame so that you could receive honor. He has been highly exalted. His name is above every name. And that's the name that he gives to you. So receive it with honor. Embrace the honor that's yours in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we just want to acknowledge this morning that through this passage in Isaiah, what we learn is that you were despised and you were rejected by men. A man of sorrows, bearing all of our shame, rejected cast aside so that you might bring us into that honor that God has given you. Lord, this morning, would you set us free from shame? We bring to you all of the unresolved places in our souls where shame still lingers, the lies in our self-talk. Help us to bring that before you and associate with your honor, Jesus. We ask that you would move us into that hopeful posture this morning and remind us that you haven't just taken away our guilt, as amazing as that is. You've taken away our shame. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Our church's mission is to follow God, share His truth, and be examples of the love of Jesus to all. If you would like to know more about us, you can visit our website at www.rittmangrace.org or drop by anytime for one of our in-person Sunday morning worship services. Once again, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Rittman Grace Podcast.